Hello, Evie. You. It was you. Yeah. That wasn't real. It's Gordon. I'm sorry, but Mr. Dietrich's dead. I thought they'd arrest him, but when they found a Quran in his house, they had him executed. Oh, God. Fortunately, I got to you before they did. He got to me. You did this to me. You cut my hair. You tortured me. You tortured me. Why? You said you wanted to live without fear. I wish there'd been an easier way, but there wasn't. Oh, my God. I know you may never forgive me, but nor will you ever understand how hard it was for me to do what I did. Every day I saw in myself everything you see in me now. Every day I wanted to end it. But each time you refused to give in, I knew I couldn't. You're sick! You're evil! You could have ended it, Evie. You could have given in, but you didn't. Why? Leave me alone! I hate you! That's it! See, at first, I thought it was hate, too. Hate was all I knew. It built my world, imprisoned me, taught me how to eat, how to drink, how to breathe. I thought I'd die with all the hate in my veins. But then something happened. It happened to me. Just as it happened to you. Shut up! I don't want to hear your lies! Your own father said that artists use lies to tell the truth. Yes, I created a lie. But because you believed it, you found something true about yourself. No! What was true in that cell is just as true now. What you felt in there has nothing to do with me. I can't feel anything anymore! Don't run from it, Evie. You've been running all your life. <laughs> Listen to me, Evie. This may be the most important moment of your life. Commit to it. They took your parents from you. They took your brother from you. They put you in a cell and took everything they could take, except your life. And you believed that was all there was, didn't you? The only thing you had left was your life, but it wasn't, was it? You found something else. In that cell, you found something that mattered more to you than life. Because when they threatened to kill you unless you gave them what they wanted, you told them you'd rather die. You faced your death, Evie. You were calm, you were still. Try to feel now what you felt then. There's a lift. It'll take us to the roof.
about that. <laughs> so that's my favorite scene in V for Vendetta, gentlemen. It's a pretty <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to show you that because I think, I mean, I got the goosebumps just watching that. And it's because it speaks so deeply to me. Um, first of all, he sets it up. Like you said, you wanted to live without fear. Like, no doubt. Like, we all want to live without fear. We all want to somehow overcome and transcend the paralyzing terror of being finite, of being mortal, of being bounded, of potentially succumbing to entropy in the end. And there are all these spiritual practices, all these uh, psychological techniques for transcending our fear, transcending our ego, so to speak. And I think this scene just at least aesthetically and the the theatrically portrays that beautifully, right? Mm -hmm. Like she, she eventually um, tells her prisoners in the scenario that she is okay with them killing her. She's still not going to tell them what they want mm -hmm. to know. So she faced her death. And that reminds me of um, Robert Moore's quote from uh, Archetypes of Initiation, where he says, if you cannot submit, you cannot die. And if you cannot die, you cannot be reborn. So this is very interesting from a psychological perspective, because of course, my biggest existential conundrum is the notion of death itself. This is not about physical death. This is not about suicide. This is about dying to yourself psychologically. This is about submitting. This is about looking directly at the fear and welcoming it and realizing that it's a feather bed. You know, this mm -hmm. is Terrence McKenna's yeah. hurling yourself into the abyss and realizing that it's a feather bed. But if there's a big distinction between this psychological act as an archetypal, archetypal act, right, as a poetic act versus somebody literalizing this because they took too many psychedelics and they jumped off a window thinking they were going to hurl themselves <laughs> into the abyss and end up killing themselves. So these are very different things. Um, and so I'm trying to find a way to reconcile that because I am about the idea of, you know, these, these, these voluntary ego submissions and ego surrenders because that's how you get to flow, yeah. by surrendering, by letting go. But I'm not into the idea of accepting for the finality of death. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a singular, singularitarian. I'm a fucking pro-technology. Let's use genetics, biotech. Let's in create indefinite lifespans. Like, let's not go quietly into that good night. Let's rage against the dying of the light in terms of our physical bodies and vessels. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, like, our inner chatter and our psychological neuroses, mm -hmm. like, this is something that we need to learn to constantly... Um, eclipse yeah. and absolves our absolve ourselves from mm -hmm. and so i am a mass of contradictions but this is where i'm at <laughs> we contain multitudes yeah i contain multitudes <laughs> so i'm a scared shitless coward that's terrified of like aging and dying in the future but i'm also somebody who's very pro like figuring out ways of surrendering to the moment to find flow so. yeah and your work is quite mythopoetic and it speaks to i think a lot of the anxiety that the zeitgeist feels right now and your work is quite frankly a channel to new new versions of what the future could be new releases into permanent flow states yeah. where at least a recognition that flow is something that we can tap into and achieve yeah. transcendence in yeah. you know to find heaven in earth on yeah. earth well when I first uh, drank the Singularity Kool-Aid, I became obsessed with Ray Kurzweil's book, The Singularity is Near. And the reason for it uh, was because I felt that it offered a 
techno-scientific basis, a, a secular version of salvation built on a materialist understanding of reality, right? Like consciousness is something that rises from matter, from the brain, from the meatware, and but fundamentally it's a pattern of information and eventually we'll be able to emulate that pattern of information in another substrate that is not bound by entropy and so aging and death can be overcome. There's a thousand loopholes and, and, and holes in that logic, I know, but it still seemed more plausible to me than you know, traditional theistic religions that told you that God will save you and you will, you know, live forever in the kingdom of God. And so for a, a sort of atheistic, neurotic Jew like me, um, this notion of the singularity was like, well, technology has delivered where religion never has. Like technology makes, you know, impossible <laughs> devices of a kind of divine engineering that yeah. that every day engender miracles that I can't even begin to understand. I mean, have you ever tried reading Shannon's theory of information? Mm -hmm. You know, that freaking like explains how like we can encode information and transmit meaning. I mean, this is a wireless device that allows me to send my voice, my thoughts across the planet, across the ocean. People can receive me, interpret me, experience me without the limitations of geography, without the limitations of space, without the limitations of time. I mean, Technology to me is is something that deploys a kind of magical metaphysics by virtue of the fact that it's a complexity that I can't fully understand. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, said Arthur C. Clarke. Mm -hmm. And so when I felt reading things like The Singularity is Near, I was like, oh shit, okay, wow. So the magic that we deploy to make smartphones, maybe one day we'll do that to like save our consciousness from decrepitude of aging and death. And mm -hmm. so that was very... Uh, that was very appealing to me. Right. Um, but in the meantime, right, like, okay, like I'm clinging to that, to, to, to science and technology to save us. But that's, that's to save us from, from death and doom. But we still need to be saved on a daily basis from the curse of meaninglessness, from, from, from succumbing to despair, from the excessive rumination and self-consciousness of anxiety and of depression. I mean, I need salvation from that daily. Mm -hmm. And, and for that, I think creativity and flow are, are the only answers. Yeah. You know, find ways to indulge in a form of lovemaking, whether it's sex with your partner or sex with your art. Mm -hmm. Like flow is relief from the inner chatter, from the monkey mind, from the fear. It's putting it in a drawer. It's saying, okay, fine. If the singularity happens, great. Let's invest all our money into the stock of the singularity and hope that it happens. But in the meantime, how do we enjoy every moment without the terrifying incongruity of mortal beings who dream of immortality. Like, how do we free ourselves from the fear while we wait for something like the singularity to hopefully transpire? And if it doesn't, how do we make sure that the time that we do have in this life, you know, delivers? Mm -hmm. Well, so that's like the lovemaking you mentioned is, is almost sort of a, it's an integration with a transcendent, right? Across multiple levels of our being in that sense. No Although, doubt. There, but what is the transcendent, yeah. right? That's the thing. I have encountered it, yet I cannot yet it has not absolved me of my existential fears. Like I've yeah. had moments of aesthetic communion, mm -hmm. yeah. right? I've had moments where I feel pierced by something so beautific, by something so grand, by something so rapturous, right? I, I feel pierced by melody. I feel pierced by catharsis. I feel pierced by the climax in a perfect song, right? Moved to the point of tears, as Albert Camus says. I've felt that 10 times over, right? Mm -hmm. Yet, if I have a couple of days of like minimal stimuli and then I don't sleep well by one day, like my demons come right back. And then I look at old photographs and I'm like, wow, I'm a year older than I was last year. And so all of a sudden, all of that encounter with the transcendent 
no longer satiates my grief. So yeah. this is my yeah. problem. Well, I think it's actually, a, we can maybe tie this back even into the V for Vendetta um, yeah. segment that we watch, right? Where we have this, uh, it's almost like this existential perspective of you have this immense, these immense uh, periods of suffering that are like gateways into this transcend, transcendent self-knowledge, this experience that was imposed upon you, um, whether you knew it or not. And, and I think that's what V was speaking to where he says, it doesn't matter if it was fake or real from your perspective of like whether I did it or not, what happened was inside you and therefore it was as real as it's gonna get. It's the most real thing, right? Where it's like, that's very, that's, that's very much the existentialist perspective where it's like this, this bounded finite in the face of, of the infinite universe in, in front of us that is the, the driver of what we perceive as suffering. And then to give into that as our, uh, to give into our finitude and then try to live that to its fullest is, is kind of that same cathartic moment. No doubt, man. And I think that you're speaking to what Michael Pollan alludes to in his book, How to Change Your Mind, where he dives deep into the science or the renaissance of psychedelics deployed for psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. You know, they did these studies in Johns Hopkins University where they gave people psychedelic mushrooms, they put them in a comfortable environment, people who had end of life anxiety and all kinds of other afflictions of despair, anxiety, depression. Um, and, and the mushrooms helped facilitate or occasion a mystical experience, right? It, met, it ticked all the boxes for William James' questionnaire of a mystical experience, a feeling of transcendence of the ego, transcendence of time and space, a feeling of bliss, a feeling of connection with ultimate reality, noetic truth. I mean, it ticked all the boxes. And people come out of the experience no longer afraid of death. For sure. I mean, very similar to a profound aesthetic experience that you have from even watching the movie. But here's the thing. Like, I watch the movie and I watch her have that experience. And yes, she faced her death but she didn't actually get killed bro mm -hmm. like she faced her death but she didn't like get a stroke that left her unconscious like a blood vessel didn't burst in her brain that made yeah. her into a vegetable like she faced her death psychologically but then had all her physical faculties and vitality present to go into the rain and have a goddamn epiphany that was mediated by biochemistry and context mm -hmm. so my whole thing is precisely that there's something beautiful and poetic but you know when the transcendent shines through the mattice maybe we are the mattice and the, sh the transcendent shines through us it's still employing fi a physical entity it's still using us as a conduit right and if the conduit has a f short circuit if the heart starts pumping on the conduit, there's no epiphany that's going to transpire. There's no consciousness that's going to have an experience. Mm -hmm. So this is where I just come right back to the materialist thing. Yes, you might have an experience of deep truth. You might have an epiphanic encounter with the transcendent mediated by psychedelics, mediated by a love affair, staring at the eyes of a lover's eye, watching an amazing movie. You know, sometimes fiction is more truthful than reality. When I read a book, I know that this is a construct of somebody's mind, yet it can be as real as anything else if I'm emotionally invested. When I watch a movie, I know it's fiction, and yet I'm having a real experience, mm -hmm. right? Art is the lie that reveals the truth. But that particular truth, that subjective truth, that archetypal truth that Jordan Peterson talks about is a truth that still resides, I believe, on engines made of matter. And so we still need to be alive to experience that. If we actually fucking die, there is no poetry, there is no reflection, and there is no perceiving mind who has any kind of evanescent lightning bolts of meaning. Like, there is nothing without life and sentience and a brain that works and a heart that pumps. Mm -hmm. And so this is my bummer with like even having a psychedelic trip or a moment of such beautific transcendence where I temporarily lose my fear of death in that moment, I still have to take a leap of faith that my body is going to continue to function so that I can have that experience. If I cease to exist 
for real, as in the physical plane, then there's nothing having any epiphany any longer. And that's the fucking bummer for me right now, you know, mm -hmm. until I see better evidence of, to the contrary. So this is where I'm stuck, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm like, I need to... In this mortal toil? <laughs> well, yeah, it's like I need to constantly, you could call it, you know, drug myself with poetic truth as a way of dissipating and pushing away awareness of empirical truth. Mm-hmm. Mm. The, the, the limitations, you know, the limitations imposed upon um, that that horizon of beatific engagement, so to speak, that you're talking about by the empirical truth, which is what attracts you to something like Kurzweil's transhumanism. Yes, yeah. because even listening to a beautiful song, you know, like you remember the end of Inception, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one of my favorite movies ever. So the end of Inception has all the characters finally waking up on the 747 after they've flown from Japan mm -hmm. to the U.S. and they've completed this mission. They've went four levels into dream space. They even went to limbo. They, the two characters that went to limbo, spent a lifetime there. The the freaking the the the, the Japanese businessman he grew old in limbo just in the just in the in the con, in the duration of that flight you know and then when they all wake up nobody speaks to each other they they, they just all look at each other I mean it's 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 a, it's a moment of just again it's a moment of archetypal deep truth communion yeah. consciousness realizing that it's so much larger than itself like everything everything yeah. has all the hints of like a religious transformation for all the characters I mean mm -hmm. and for me as a viewer the combination of the music the cinematography um, uh, identifying with the characters all of it together is just lifting me above myself right but when I leave the movie theater I'm sad that I don't have an eternity in which to relive that experience mm. I'm like how many more times can I watch that movie before I grow old mm -hmm. <laughs> like you know like because I don't know if in this world I'll wake up into a young body again yeah like they say in that movie will we be young men together again well I <laughs> fucking hope so yeah god or Damn. before it grows old as well, to what? some extent. I mean, like to some extent, I guess if you were to watch that movie a million times, maybe you feel like it would never grow old. But to some extent, like you, well, that's also a bummer. You, yeah, you might. It is, but like it, it's almost this dopamine is a bummer. <laughs> but it's <laughs> but it's also this drive for us to keep on creating things that provide novel windows into that same experience. No, no, for for sure. But it's 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 kind of like when I experience the timeless ecstasy of communing with a yeah. moment with a piece of art. It's accompanied by this meta-awareness mm -hmm. that even that moment of poetic, timeless truth exists and resides inside of a world in which the clock keeps ticking. Mm -hmm. And so I haven't been able to eliminate that dissonance. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you know what I'm saying? I, I never lose track of the fact that there's still a body that ages over time. Mm -hmm. Even yeah. though I tell myself every day, like Tom Cruise says in Vanilla Sky, we all secretly believe that you'll be the one person in the history of man who would live forever. <laughs> so, what else does he say in that film? Every moment is another chance to turn it all around. Every passing minute is another chance to turn it all around. There it is. And there is that built into this experience. Is oh, yeah. This eternal recurrence of coming to the transcendent. Mm. And... Yeah, Jamie Wheel calls it dying into the moment. You dying know, into the moment. You're constantly reborn as yourself, right? You're like eternal renewal of some sort. Yeah, and it sounds like a lot of the existential angst or tension is in uncertainty, is in this feeling of like, oh, will I ever get to experience this sense of flow and abundant joy again? Mm -hmm. And there is something to be said about knowing that it's coming back and then being in that space yeah, where it's faith. not there and just being alive and aware to that transition and knowing that you know it, it's need you need to have this this 
dichotomy almost to appreciate it to its mm-hmm. fullest. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's part of the package almost. Yeah, but why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah. fuck it. Like David Pierce, he wrote in the hedonistic imperative about paradise engineering yeah, and like yeah, reprogramming yeah. our freaking wetware and yeah. inducing or giving ourselves like some kind of genetically pre-programmed gradients of bliss that yeah. are so beyond our baseline. Like, like here's the thing: if we can imagine it, why can't we uh, act as if it's possible? Right. You know, and, and granted, you know, I, I don't want to make some metaphysical leap and say, well, that's stupid because we can imagine like Superman doesn't mean that anybody's flying with a red cape. Well, fair enough. But dreams are real in the sense that they are real patterns of information. Mm-hmm. So if you can conceive of something enough to see it in your mind's eye, well, those are real patterns of information mm-hmm. and therefore they're allowed by the laws of physics. You yeah. Know? If it exists within the within the, the realm of the mind, well, physics does allow for it, at least in that subjective dimension of the imagination. And we're capable also of doing what Gene Youngblood famously wrote about in Expanded Cinema with movies. Movies are actualized imaginings. They're waking dreams projected in front of our eyes, right? He says, cinema reflects mankind's historical drive to manifest his consciousness outside of his mind in front of his eyes. So not only can things be conceived of and made real in our mind, that seem impossible, but then those things can be made real in front of our eyes, mm-hmm. right? And then consciousness also gives us the capacity to not just stare at the screen, but to look into the screen. Mm-hmm. Because as soon as we identify with the character, we've left our body behind. We're no longer identifying with ourselves, we're identifying with that character. So what does that tell us about identity? Mm-hmm. Because when I'm fully immersed in a movie and I've identified with the character on screen, I'm undergoing his psychological transformation. Mm-hmm. So who's Jason in that scenario? Mm-hmm. I've become Cobb in Inception. I've undergone his journey with him. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so it's just like there's so many multitudes and perspectives that you can embrace depending on your mood and depending on where your mind is at that can either make you think like, wow, well, there are mysteries at play here that I don't fully understand and I just kind of choose to believe that we are infinite because the possibilities are infinite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then there are other moments like, you know, when you're tired, when you're hungry, when you have a headache, when your mom's friend gets diagnosed with a tumor in her kidney mm-hmm. that seemingly dismiss all of our reassuring creative musings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is like, my constant ping-ponging and oscillation. Let's use the, um, the, the idea or the, the kind of concept of dreams that you were bringing up there to tap further into that, right? Where it's like you were kind of mentioning this idea of this information pattern that's possible in our subjective awareness to some extent. Like the story can manifest itself in our own brains. It yeah. can arise in, and we can be aware of it. And yet there can still be that incongruity with the external physical reality. And as we were talking about before, before we started the podcast, that kind of seems to relate to this idea of the balance between chaos and order that edge of chaos where it's like in theory you can have this this reality in your own mind but then how does that make contact with this, the physical space of everyone else trying to do the same thing um, no doubt I mean um, I feel like we you know there there are multiple levels at play here right so there's a on one level there has to be a world in which we live by consensus so that we can collaborate and cooperate with other physical beings and we can fetch water, chop wood, Mm -hmm. carry a load, do things, call you, make sure you meet me at two o'clock on an agreed upon moment at this agreed upon place with agreed upon coordinates. Mm -hmm. And you know, that world 
is optimized by amazing technology that I can't even begin to understand. The GPS that tells me exactly where the message that I send you, that you receive, that you then may somehow show up in that place. I mean, there's metaphysical things happening even in the world of consensus and collaboration yeah. and cooperation. But nonetheless, that still forces us to operate on a kind of mechanized cognition, right? Where we're bound by a version of time perception. Mm -hmm. um, and we're also bound by the fact that our reality projection that we create at every moment has to account for the fact that you have a reality projection too. And so there's, le there's less poetry in that consensus and that collaboration. There's a lot more poetry when you go to a desolate landscape with a friend and then you can appropriate that landscape to pattern your mind and you can project your own mind onto that landscape and you can essentially create a waking movie, a, a fusion of cognition and dream in that moment with that beautific landscape. But as soon as some other annoying group of people <laughs> cross your mind, you cross in front of you, that's the equivalent of somebody turning on the cell phone in the movie theater. Mm -hmm. They take you out of the dream you were in because you have to account for another subjectivity having mm -hmm. another dream in that moment. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a... Um, there's a, the quote, there's a quote. Is, well, there's sense. a quote by David Lenson. Did you ever read the book on drugs? Mm -hmm. No. So David Lenson wrote a book about the uh, phenomenology of drug use, mm -hmm. and um, he he that he has this uh, fantastic quote about um, about the metamorphosis mm -hmm. that drugs, that mind altering drugs, have occasioned. Um, the primary metamorphosis is with time. Mm -hmm. But by the way, time perception is directly connected with with our, our notion of reality. Yeah. The authorship of reality is mediated by how we perceive time. Because again, when you watch a movie and you assume the viewpoint of the character, you experience what they call the deictic shift, which mm -hmm. is when awareness moves from you into the character's POV. You're now looking upon the world out of the character's eyes. Mm -hmm. Now there's a crazy amount of time dilation happening because the movie's only two hours by the empirical running clock outside the theater. But inside the theater and inside your mind, those two hours are a meaningless measure of experience. Well, this is like the Greeks. They had Kronos and Kairos. Exactly right. Paradigms of time. Exactly. And so this is what David Lenson says. <sighs> okay. What is metamorphosed in repeated drug taking is time. Time is what undergoes a metamorphosis. What Einstein did for physics and Nietzsche did for philosophy is recapitulated in every drug-affected mind. Mm. Drug consciousness in the 20th century has reflected and mimicked changes in the way that physics and philosophy have reinterpreted the universe. And then he goes on. Um, it took the drug scene and the drug world to make every man a phenomenologist. To demonstrate that sophisticated, complex, elaborate procedures of analytic reduction could become a mass-produced consumer product. <laughs> Once a subject is accustomed to constructing consciousness according to this cognitive quantum mechanics, right, which is what we do when we watch movies, when we get high, when we make love, anytime we do anything that takes us out of time, when we're in flow... You know, once we're accustomed to constructing consciousness according to this cognitive quantum mechanics, the return to a Newtonian universe is difficult to achieve. Mm -hmm. Such a reversion, it seems to the user, would require a renunciation of joy and play, of insight and vision, and of privileged knowledge and perception. It would entail a return to mechanized cognition. Mm. 
Hmm. The Newtonian mechanical universe, right? This idea that, that everything must be constrained, all consciousness must fit into that. It doesn't have room that for time is the same thing. everywhere, all the time, yeah. for everyone, yeah, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Well, Use the relationship of drugs and technology as well, because technology inherently fractures time. Also. It transcends space also. and time. And yep. so it, it, it is very similar in its ability to stimulate consciousness and then our greed collective consciousness in ways never before possible. Yeah. No doubt. But, um, I agree with that, but you know, back what back to the point that I was saying with this quote is that the insights of quantum physics, you know, that reality is mediated by the observer, mm -hmm. that things exist in a state of superposition until somebody collapses it into the real by observing. Like there's all these counterintuitive things that quantum physics tells us about reality mm -hmm. that don't necessarily match the Newtonian mechanized sure. world in which we operate, including our awareness of us as mortal beings inhabiting a body that is subject to metabolic processes and entropy that ages over time that can be measured empirically with Newtonian understanding of the passing of time. Mm -hmm. You know, if relativism tells us that time can pass slower or faster depending on where you are, and if quantum physics maybe tells us that time is an illusion, I, I don't know, mm. um, then does is consciousness privy to these truths and can we maybe are there techniques we can deploy to trick our consciousness into perceiving the world in this way yeah. so that our suffering about being newtonian beings that age and die yeah maybe well, this is, won't be necessary this anymore. is where like psycho cybernetics and ontological design becomes quite interesting correct because they're they're tools they're they're, they're means through which we can better move through the world according to our artistic and lustful yearnings for our felt presence of experience. Yeah, I mean, those are tools for reality authoring. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. You know, which you risk, you risk sounding like a uh, new age zealot selling a cheap self-help book. <laughs> I'm, I'm incredibly, I'm, I'm an open-minded skeptic. I love ideas. I'm fascinated by ideas. But they have to pass my bullshit detector, and so the, the 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 notion of like create your reality and author your reality and what has what has been put out into the world with the success of things like the secret, I'm I'm a bit skeptical about because I think they've oversimplified what is something that can fundamentally be explained. Yeah. Um, in a way that it doesn't have to sound like woo woo, yeah. mm -hmm. an unnecessary injection of mystery. Yeah. 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 So, but I I, I do agree with you. I think yeah. that deploying things like ontological design. Um, is a way of what David Lenson refers to as uh, stewardship of internal life. Yeah, reclaiming stewardship of internal life. So yeah. it's like it's like okay, I'm going to modify my interpretive frameworks. I'm going to carefully curate my creative and linguistic choices. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make sure I hang out with certain people because I become whom I behold. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm going to yeah okay I'm gonna I'm gonna act no different than somebody who is doing theater and mm -hmm. you know they do choreography they do set design they do production design they cast the right actors mm -hmm. and then they create a reality that mm -hmm. unfolds before the eyes of the audience yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah so can we do that within our own lives you know, yeah. can we create and perceive our world well we must we because if to. we don't someone else will and we'll be part of someone else's dream well that sucks i mean <laughs> we've seen that that at least as far as 
news and current events is concerned, mm-hmm. we've seen that reality warping, distortion, fielding, uh, reality tunnel, mm-hmm. manipulation, filter bubble thing mm-hmm. uh, become a real metastasized cancer in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. There's, um, <clears throat> so with respect to your quote that you read there, I think there's, there's so much to unpack. There's, it's such a deep quote on so many fronts, but it's reminding me of a couple conversations we've had on our podcast with a couple other guests. One was Garrett Lisi, a physicist, quantum, basically like a mathematician physicist. He's the one that came up with his theory while he was surfing. Yeah, yeah, basically the surfer, he's a really amazing guy. But the interesting thing about what you're kind of talking about is this tension between this, you know, this experience on drugs of, of this, um, reality that can't necessarily be fit into a world that uh, doesn't account for uh, phenomena such as quantum collapse or like this notion of um, this notion of uh, inexplicable randomness that's constantly re-injecting itself into everything we thought was previously controllable so to speak mm. but the the desire I think to not let go of that previous world, um, especially with those who are not as entrenched in, in the drug culture. We actually talked a little bit about LSD with Garrett and he was definitely on this, this other side of the fence where he hasn't used it. And so, but he also interesting is like not, uh, he doesn't interpret the quantum uh, world as this wave function collapse. He's a fan of the many worlds. So like the universe constantly fragmenting all the time because it doesn't require collapse, which I've is been, I've been, it's kind I've of I've been obsessed with the many worlds theory <laughs> since yeah. I was, 14 yeah just to show you how back how far back these existential issues have haunted (laughs) me okay like (laughs) i was reading novels since i was a little kid one book i read once was called the man who turned into himself Hmm. and it used the many worlds theory Hmm. the heveritz interpretation of quantum Mm -hmm. mechanics to tell a story of a guy who is married and yada yada he has a pretty good life and he wakes up one day with a faint disquiet something's something's wrong he doesn't know what it is you know that kind of inexplicable phenomenological intuition that we all have and often rely upon to tell us something's off and sure enough he gets a phone call his wife got in a car accident he goes to the scene of it she dies in his arms he cannot accept this reality like his whole world implodes um, and then I can't remember how the author transitions from this point, but somehow he does. And basically we go, the, the stress of the situation uh, makes the guy flip switches into a parallel universe. Oh, wow. So he's still him, but it's a universe in which she didn't get into a car yeah. accident. So it's like tragedy collapses him yeah. into a parallel world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, where she didn't die. But then there's all these things that are a little bit different uh-huh. and he retains the memory. Mm. of seeing her die but now she's alive so then of course that creates an interesting plot yeah. twist for him to try to investigate mm-hmm. what's going on um but again you know whether it's a story like that or a movie like inception you yep. know um and how the real world is just the one that you choose to believe is real right um and also gives a lot of insights as to psychosis you know because those people can also convince themselves of a reality that's so separate from consensual reality that they get socially ostracized and then distraught and then even if whatever they glimpsed at was at one point meaningful now it's causing them nothing but trouble and alienation and loneliness so uh i don't know where i was going with that but um what was i going with that what? I know, we're you? talking many worlds. We're talking many about- worlds, many worlds. Yeah. 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 Um, no, this, this has been something that I've questioned my entire life. You know, like that, that, that there's this, this hunger for some fucking like ultimate explanation, mm-hmm. like some, like some fascinating, all accounting, aha, you know, that some, that it, that will be revealed. And, and maybe that's 
not a scientific that's not scientifically possible maybe maybe that's a religious question mm-hmm. or problem but nonetheless it's it's i've had it for a while you know? mm-hmm. like, yeah <laughs> the yearning for synthesis or the yearning yeah. for synthesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To kind of like take all these pieces that keep trying to pull themselves apart and, and stitch them together. Yeah. In a way that actually is comprehensible. Yeah. Yeah. And meaningful. And then the power of sort of the contemplative practices or the ability to tune into the present moment is inherently a space. This is like a, a liminal space where we're deconstructing the past, where we're choosing what we want to recall in terms of memories, in terms of how we've come to now, and then also iterate it thinking about the future and it's sort of this collapse of all of these possibilities into this moment in which then we create then we say okay based on all of these things I step forward like so and so it is something there is something to be said for the ability for an individual to reclaim this self-narration the self-authoring I mean we have to right I mean they say that uh a personal crisis is when the story that you tell yourself about yourself is no longer convincing. Mm. That was put out there by the creator of a YouTube channel called The Nerd Writer. Yeah, I love his stuff. <sighs> he's so brilliant. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, I just love that he exists. Like, thank you for existing because the fact that you put those videos essays into the world is soothing to me. Mm-hmm. Every time I watch one and I bookmark it, and sometimes I rip them off YouTube. Like it just—it's mm-hmm. this feeling of like, oh, I, that I can rewatch that and feel that intellection tingle mm-hmm. forever and ever again. Mm-hmm. The connection to wanting to like own epiphanic moments, wrap my head around them. But he said that he did a video about um, love and whether Shakespeare had invented love, and huh. he's talking about where you know there was a time um, in in sort of Western Europe or in early early societies that there was no upward mobility. And because there was no upward mobility, people generally accepted their fate because it was ordained by God. That was probably bullshit, right? And most people are exploited and case systems are awful. But in the perceiver's mind, if it's ordained by God, you don't question it. And therefore, you're not that depressed about it because God wants you to be poor. You might as well be poor. Mm -hmm. Um, But then when upward mobility became a thing mm-hmm. in Europe, right? You know, there's all these economic changes and all of a sudden you could pull yourself up by your bootstrap. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people started to be successful through their own ingenuity of eff- and effort. You know, So there was upward mobility all of, a, all of a sudden. But this coincided with the rise of uh, lunatic asylums. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because there were all these people that were succeeding in an upwardly mobile world but for the first time, there were also people who were failing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because if there's a possibility for upward mobility, you yeah. all of a sudden have the opportunity to improve your lot, mm-hmm. which means you can also fail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And facing that failure created the diseases of schizophrenia and manic depression started to appear for the first time in our history, which says that these are social cultural diseases. Because again, personal crisis. You know, your own failings and your own, you know, you you don't succeed in the story you tell yourself about yourself and things are not ordained by God. And so there is no peace of mind. It's up to the God or the state. At least it's their problem, right? But as soon as you open up that. It's your problem. Yeah, yeah. You take the risk. you didn't succeed. It's your fault. And so, and then he says that Shakespeare in writing Romeo and Juliet was the first time in history he basically invented a means for people to regulate their self-narrative that wasn't dependent on Mm. business success, Hmm. but rather upon a lover. The Hollywoodness of it, the love conquers all motif was basically piloted by Shakespeare in, in, in Romeo and Juliet because 
now it's like the Ernest Becker's romantic solution to the problem of death. Now, if somebody loved you for you, they elevate you to the, you know, the, to the status of Godhead, right? Because that's what love is. The Hollywoodness of love is the moment of deification. You deify each other. Mm -hmm. She's like the wind. She's my salvation. She's the sun. And that worked because her believing in you. That's another line in Vanilla Sky from his lucid dream. Mm -hmm. Her believing in me, me believing that I actually deserved it. Like they created their own world together. Mm -hmm. That mental modeling and mental mirroring that two people do can create an intersubjective thing that can become real. And so so he basically says that that Shakespeare invented love, which is a fascinating theory. Mm Yeah, like love as. Um, are you familiar with any of Jordan Greenhall stuff? Have you seen any of his work? Uh, like, yeah, well, the neurohacker guys. Yeah, yeah, like yeah the, the, the sovereignty idea that he's been talking oh, about. Oh no, no, no! It's a lot like we were talking about in terms of like people coming together and finding ways to create these like stable meta universes that are a function of both of their their own personal sovereignty, but then they integrate wow. into this greater sovereignty. Wow. That that you can kind of imagine that like scaling as a society, but it also in, wow. encompasses wow. or or it puts that burden of responsibility on the individual as well. Hmm. Which ties into, I think you were mentioning Jordan Peterson a little mm-hmm. bit earlier as mm-hmm. well. And mm-hmm. maybe that's also partly why responsibility is so resonant right now because of that fact that we it also gives have, you agency because we yeah. have so much. Yeah, we there's it gives you agency and it gives you that ability to to feel as if we have some amount of control in a world that is increasingly chaotic. Yeah. Or at least we feel well, that Daniel way. Schmachtenberger, who yeah. works with Jordan Greenhall, when I, I was going through a period a couple of years ago of when I was having some pretty bad uh, issues with anxiety. Hmm. Um, I mean, look. Anxiety is part of the artistic temperament, but mm-hmm. at the time, it wasn't under control. Yeah. Um, and he told me this idea that he had been in a black hole for a while um, after some experiences of derealization and depersonalization from too much psychedelics. <laughs> um, and he said that what the way that he found his way back from that was relearning to connect with his sense of agency. Mm-hmm. Realizing that you have agency to steer the contents of your mind to steer your awareness and to govern your actions is the first way of reconstructing a broken ego mm-hmm. you know which is not to say that involuntary submission of the ego is not important it is but involuntary killing of the ego such as when you experience horrific betrayal such as when somebody gets sick in your family like it shatters your world and you weren't prepared for it and it wasn't done in the sacred context that can fuck you up you know um, that can be dangerous. It invites mm-hmm. chaos into your life. You know, all your assumptions about this person that betrayed you, you know, are called into question. Then all your assumptions about the world are called into question. And all of a sudden you are now in a world that doesn't make sense. You're, you're flirting with madness. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, anyway, he was talking about how like reclaiming agency, reclaiming stewardship of consciousness, how your creative and linguistic choices can govern your fate is the first step towards like reclaiming your sense of self. And then if you can then partner up with people who have shared visions well then that's burning man right that's ecstatic comunitas i mean mm-hmm. it's 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 me hearing you wax philosophical about the things you guys are talking about and feeling a sense of reassurance and i'm like huh there's people in the world that are thinking about cool shit there's amazing smart capable people that are not selfish scared dickwads <laughs> making the world worse like so many of the people we read about on the news mm-hmm. uh, this is cool yeah, i can be like I, don't, I can take time off knowing that there's others out there with similar visions. For sure. Which removes the burden from feeling like I'm the only person that can that's making sense these days. Well, no, I'm not. There's a lot of people that are making a lot of sense, and that that's 
that gives us room for hope. Yeah. It's yeah. Like we empower each other, you know? I think that's one of the main projects of what we're doing is trying to catalyze the coherence of all of these yeah. people that are yeah. finding these these yeah. truths, these ideas, uh, yeah. and to then align our, our, our each other, ourselves, yeah. in yeah. the shared reality. Yeah. To, to, to find new stories through which we can all live by. Yeah. 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 I'm getting this image of like a, um, like a Peloton in like bicycle racing to some extent where it's like there's this, you know, you're kind of, you have this headwind and by everybody grouping together and there's a leader at one point, but they kind of cycle through that leader. Like you're saying, like you don't have to feel as if you have to basically bear the full force of the headwind yeah. all the time. Right. You can trust that the rest of this group is there and somebody will take over for you and you can no kind doubt. of keep on making that progress. No doubt. I mean, who wants to, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, the, the, concept of of a cult leader or a, a, a charismatic person that pretends to know everything is always a turnoff what's much more interesting to me is a lot of people who are really fascinating totally. you know it's like it's like <laughs> i you know there's people that resonate with my content right and they want to ask me questions but i take great joy in also in turn being the one that wants to ask questions of others yeah. you know i want to go and sit down and listen to eric davis wax rhapsodic about technosis i want to yeah. listen to jamie wheel of fluid genome project i want to listen to stephen kotler i want to listen to jordan peterson and then i want to find the through lines of where they intersect and then i want to compare that with some of the riffs of like kevin kelly and what technology wants and mm -hmm. the technium and then i want to ask kurzweil what he thinks about that you know and it's 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 for me all those people are like a different, uh, they're like a different instrument, yeah. a different mm -hmm. person in this orchestra. Yeah. And and reading through their messaging and finding coherence of mm -hmm. where this guy's stuff overlaps with this guy's stuff, that's like a chord. Yep. That's yeah. like a chord being formed in this orchestra. And like eventually, if you organize all these ideas in the right way, well, then it starts to become like a whole melody, mm -hmm. you yeah. know? And then the question becomes, well, how do we like, scale the reach of this like melody and, you know and the melody has like you know each instrument is like beautiful free-flowing jazz of truth and beauty but all of them are synergistically like aligned and in harmony with all the other instruments and then it just feels like this like self-organizing spontaneous rise of revelation yeah. intuition transformation you know like mm -hmm. yeah. And that self-organization is key, right? Because well, it in, exists. In, in the modern era, when yeah. we had yeah. the um, the initial rise of orchestral music, yeah. it, we had the conductor, right? right? Everything was very precise. Everything had to be very yeah. um, precisely practiced. Everybody had to yeah. know their role. Everybody had to exa exactly conform mm -hmm. to the script or mm -hmm. effectively the music, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what you're talking about and what we're trying to get at with this idea of coherence is like, how do you have the emergent symphony? How do you cohere so that the, it can change and it can evolve. There's not one script. There's an ever-evolving, flowing, expanding script that's constantly yeah. harmonic and beautiful. So my intuition is you don't create the symphony. You try to facilitate... Um, what is it that McKenna talked about? The attractor? From yeah, the, yeah. the eschaton. Yeah, the, the eschaton. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, think of the metaphor of, like, magnets and how mm -hmm. when the magnets they can either like attract and, and 
that's one of those things where it's like you realize that your senses are limited and you're not really seeing all of reality. It's like, okay, these things are being pulled together, but I can't see what's pulling them together. But if you put the wrong sides, then they repel. Yeah. Okay, so there's unseen forces at play, measurable, quantifiable, unseen, invisible forces that either pull or attract. So if those unseen, measurable, quantifiable forces exist, then that's not a stretch to use a metaphor like that and saying, right coherence right synergy innovation self-organization is something that when the conditions are right pulls together like a magnet and an attractor Mm -hmm. oh definitely Mm -hmm. and when the conditions are wrong well the repulsion just keeps anything from self-organizing and so you know Kevin Kelly's technium says the entire technological enterprise is that. Mm-hmm. You know, Stephen Johnson in his book Where Good Ideas Come From talks about simultaneous invention. Mm-hmm. Right before Darwin wrote his book on, on the origin of species, there's like four other five other guys in the world about to publish the same theory. Mm-hmm. They didn't know each other, they didn't have the same research, yet they all came to the same conclusion through different ends. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, maybe because again, this is an attractor. Mm-hmm. Right. It's pulled towards novelty engendering universe that mm-hmm. we hear that we live in. Um, exists in spite of us. We are often the conduits through which this extropic force, right? The opposite of entropy works. And this pull towards complexity, this pull towards, it all seems to make sense. And so, so what we have to do is facilitate, if we can, through our agency, this process of complexification, this move towards the omega point, Mm -hmm. right? If we can be co-authors and co-participants and co-facilitators you know human beings are like the astroglide for the evolutionary process like you know that's what we're doing it's like we're we're toward, we're removing friction you know we're removing the the noise so that the signal can pierce through mm-hmm. yeah. and 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 that's that's where mimetic warfare is playing out you know, that's where the attention economy might have an evolutionary purpose to serve because what we pay attention to is more likely to govern our actions and lead to the kind of facilitation for this wonderful complexity to continue or for us to pivot and destroy ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. like cells turning metastatic and becoming a cancer. Mm-hmm. So that's where we are, man. Mm-hmm. Like, so I hope, you know, I hope that all these smart folks doing the good work do the good work and then let's solve the death thing (laughs) because all of us need to you know we need to exist and persist indefinitely man i want to i want to i want to sit at the edge of a galaxy and witness celestial events man like Hmm. you know i I want i want to witness starships of the imagination i I want to fucking be like jodie foster at the end of contact you know like i just like Drinking in the Milky Way. Too much, too much fascinating stuff at the tip of the horizon. You know, like I just, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Jung said, "I people don't have ideas. Ideas have people." Mm. And it's, I think, what you were talking about along these lines of just like tapping into that moment in which something is set to be birthed, and as we feel this convergence in the world now this 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 sense of everything happens now mm. as douglas rushkoff wrote about in that book you know it's like he's great great yeah you do you've had some great inter- interviews with him as yeah, well a long um, time ago but yeah, yeah yeah um 
there are, it seems like there is a sense of urgency in our ability to cohere and our ability to find the right memes and ideas because there is this entropic rush of negativity their fear, fear-based mimetic warfare, oh, rather yeah, no, than no, it's 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 awful. Well, I don't know if you've seen that video, the archetype of the magician. It's mm -hmm. a really cool video. So I think that 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 the trickster is also at play here, the trickster mm -hmm. archetype, and and there's that also another book, Guide to Board or something, the mm -hmm. Society of the Spectacle. Yep. You know, I think that those are those are metastatic processes. You know, I think that. You know the magic of seeing a movie and assuming it's reality and having a cathartic transformative experience wow what a technology but that very same technology can be used for the creation of reality shows and cable news that themselves are fictions but that are fictions that are governing uh non-productive action and bias in the minds of people operating in the real world of consensus where we need mm -hmm. some kind of empirical common ground mm -hmm. and so it's 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 the whole McLuhan idea that technology extends and amputates. You know, right. fire can cook or burn your enemies. The alphabet can be for poetry or for hate speech. Yeah. You know, memes can be weaponized. Yeah, technology is a tool, and it's a fucking it's bummer, man. Because I want to use these tools for cool shit. Yeah. Right. Like, let's fucking make amazing uh -huh. movies and create virtual reality experiences that are mind gasmic, and let's like witness the birth of stars and have great fucking sex and get yeah. high and create pharmacological utopias. And you know, create smart AIs to like run things for us, yeah. and fucking use biotech to feed the hungry. Like, yeah, like we could we, can we could be post ideological, things. man. Yeah, I think God that's the interesting it. thing about this uh, this narrative landscape, right? Because it really is this this space in which all these stories. I mean, you mentioned the Society of the Spectacles, yeah. a very important book to me in yeah. college, and yeah. this notion of this notion of um, the most spectacular stories perhaps performing most effectively in this landscape of competing narratives, mm. even though they might not be the ones that facilitate that type of, um, that, that, that type of positive sum growth, that type of uh, post-ideological world, right? So how do we actually create stories that are uh, positively weaponized like how do how do we compete how do you create these stories i think that's what we're doing right sure. now we're trying well, to create but this these narratives. is the thing so on the one hand like you know you know you you listen to people like stephen pinker or even Stuart brand Stuart brand said science is the only news mm -hmm. the rest is the same he says and she says on cable television and you know she should actually ignore it because the 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 progress in the world continues yeah. even yeah. in spite you know like the news is just another channel. Yes, it's reporting on a lot of messed up stuff, but if you take the aggregate, there's a lot less messed up stuff than there used to be, mm -hmm. is the case that these guys make, and so maybe we shouldn't just waste so much of our time in in, in, in letting our amygdalas get hijacked by a fear-making machine, mm -hmm. you know, and trust that things are getting better. And also, look at the big picture. Even in the world of narrative storytelling, there's never been something like Netflix. We're in the golden age of storytelling. The content, the $13 billion a year that Netflix is spending to create good stories is content that's going to be internalized by billions of minds. Right. Yeah. Who are then going to create it their own on YouTube. I hope and amplify so. the cycle, I hope right? so. I hope so. Yeah. But don't get me wrong. I mean, I worry about noise. You yeah. Know? I, I do worry about the crowded news feeds on Facebook that are making it an experience that no people no longer can enjoy or trust. I, yeah. I feel from my own ego feels like, you know, the content that I make perhaps is reaching less people because of that noise. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there, there are day to day 
bumps in the road you know there's turbulence along the way and we have to kind of keep that in check you know and address it when we can yeah i mean shots of awe is trying to reclaim the reward system for the right things i mean there because obviously there's trying man there's science You're now sweet <laughs> on the experience of awe right like it, it's it's we talk a lot about sort of aligning incentives and, and win-win outcomes yeah yeah and yeah when when content can actually create a sense of awe a sense of wonder a sense of relation to the transcendent it's not only good viewing, but it actually leaves you in your in your felt presence yeah. happier, better, more able to tap into something numinous and no go doubt. about your life in more beautiful ways. No doubt, man. I mean, it's like if I if I I, I mean, it's for me, it's like a drug. It's like, actually not even like a drug. It's like a vitamin. You take your fish oil every day, and it's just good for you. You have a healthy breakfast every day. I think we need grace and awe. Mm -hmm. I think we need to be held and hugged and kissed. Mm -hmm. I think we need to see beautiful things on a daily basis. Yeah. I mean, these are things that we, we need constant nourishment because we are a metabolic process, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and so, you know, like I, I, you want, in a way, treat nourishing content like part of your daily routine, part right. of your daily ritual, you know? Yeah. For the part of you that that exists in a mechanized universe, mm -hmm. I think that also unlocks so many new paths for for our for our species as a whole as well. Like you were talking a lot about um, transhumanism and immortality, um, I I was very involved in in those movements in college, especially when I was younger. I still hold on to hope for that. And I was also this, I subscribed to this idea of like science is the news. And like, I knew everything about everything that was happening in science. And from that perspective, I was like, I can't see why we wouldn't achieve immortality in like 20 years, right? Like, why wouldn't that yeah. happen? Yeah. And then, and I think there's, there's a deep truth in that. And then I go into the world and I realize that like, there's all these other systems in play. Right. There's all these other human elements. There's right. all these other aspects that people who might not necessarily have the luxury of, of, of really kind of diving into how their lives could be so much better. Mm. Like they're playing other games in their own little worlds because you know, maybe they're acting in their own best interest or maybe yeah. someone's like telling them a story and they're acting on behalf of that interest. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, so perhaps we also really need to focus on unlocking all these minds before science can really be set free to, to dictate that trajectory. 100%. Yeah. 100%. I mean, how amazing would it be if, you know, Eric Davis was president of the United States? <laughs> you know what I mean? Be high like, what if, we, what if we had, like, just a, a really savvy poet and technologist yeah running the country like i mean it's just yeah. you know like wow like you know th there was a while with obama where it was like i couldn't believe it when you remember when he won mm -hmm. i was like wow an articulate well-read educated multicultural guy that represents the best of like progressive liberalism you know and then there were forces at, at play against right? him and so yeah. on and so forth but like there was a time when it just kind of felt like oh wow like intelligence can can win yeah. eloquence can yeah, win right yeah. things can be different mm-hmm mm-hmm well, I think, yeah, that was this idea of this promise of a transcendence, but then because we were still operating within the previous paradigm, right. we kind of see, saw that realization of the quote where it's like, you know, when you try to change the system from within, it's not you who changes the system, it's the system that changes you, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, which I think, I think we're, we're- Insidiously brilliant. Yeah, we're more of like the Buckminster Fuller types where it's like, don't try to change the system, build a new system, system that makes the old system obsolete, right? And that's kind of what we're, we're, where we're targeting. Well. Bless you. <laughs> <laughs>
I mean, it seems like that's kind of what you're talking about no, as no, well. No, no, you're trying to get to this like 100%. this place where awe, you know, is also oh, the dude, primary I mean, driver yes, of experience. Yes, yes. I mean, could you imagine if like your podcast had a hundred million followers on Instagram? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get there. You know? I mean, <laughs> I think amazing. like that slot is occupied by a couple of supermodels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, like uh-huh. hundred million, like they yeah. do a post in like 38 million people see it. Like, yeah. wow. Like, imagine if these ideas had that scale. Yeah. I mean, that, wow. It's hard to really wrap your mind about Whoa. how much transformation that would entail. Whoa. Yeah. Well, there is still the upcoming generation. Like, there is reason to be hopeful. Yeah. We'll see. We'll have to see. Sometimes I'm encouraged, and sometimes I've been discouraged. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm discouraged, I tell myself, well, fuck it. I'm just going to go have fun, ride my electric bike through Amsterdam, <laughs> be in the moment. <laughs> then when I'm encouraged, then I get ambitious and I'm like, how can we scale this? You know? Yeah, totally. So, well, still human, I suppose. But gentlemen, this has been a treat. Yeah. How long have we gone for? Uh, we're just at an hour here. So yeah, oh, it's been an perfect. amazing hour. I wow. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for great. joining us. I did, it felt like it went by in a minute. So thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Jason. Um, I wish you guys all continued success. Yeah. And I, uh, thanks for watching. (laughs) I appreciate it. Thanks everybody. Thanks guys. Cheers. Hello, fellow travelers. I'd just like to take a second to thank you for joining us. The mission of Catalyzing Coherence truly centers around building a community that's passionate about a more coherent future for humanity. And we'd love for you to get involved. If this content resonated with you, we invite you to help us build our community in a way that works best for you. First, please like this video and subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss out on future content. We also have a Facebook group, and you can find us on Twitter at @catcoherence. Our primary community building tool is Patreon, where you can find us at patreon.com catcoherence. We'll be posting exclusive content there, so if you're feeling especially generous and would like to help us keep the lights on as we pursue our mission to bring you high-quality content concerning humanity's future, please consider supporting us on Patreon. We look forward to seeing you there. Until next time, keep exploring and stay curious.